Well, good morning. Would you join me in opening up our Bibles to Mark chapter 12? We're going to be finishing Mark 12 this morning in our trek through this Gospel of Mark that we began over a year ago. Um, if you want to follow along in a Blue Pew Bible, I would encourage you to do so. Uh, Mark 12, the passage will be, in, will be in this morning, begins on page 849. So something that we all experience in life, and I think we can probably remember as early as we can remember we experienced this, that life is full of both warnings and promises. And both are needed to grow and to mature into the fullness of who we want to be. And, and, and we all know in any stage of our life uh, that there are times we just need a good warning. And then there's times we need a good promise for proper incentive. And, and if we're on the other side of it, if you were a good parent or a good boss or a good, good coach, leader of any kind, part of being a good leader is knowing where is a warning needed and where is a promise needed and, and what's needed in this current situation. I know uh, Rochelle and I talk often, uh, being that we're still trying to figure out this parenting thing. It's hard, man. Um, we realize that I think our technique is often 90% warnings, um, and they're probably more like threats. And we're like, we probably should dial that back a little bit, like infuse a couple promises in there. Like we say, if you don't do this then, way too much in a given day. But um, this idea of promises, warnings has always been the case. In fact, God himself in the Garden of Eden, before sin entered the world, gave both promises and warnings. He says, you will have dominion over all the fish of the sea and over all the birds of the air and everything that moves on earth. Every plant, every fruit will be yours to eat. Life in abundance to Adam and Eve. Everything except one tree. If you eat of this one tree, you will surely die. This is a warning. And both are needed. And then part of leading as well in uh, whatever context you were in is kind of pointing out, here's some bad examples to avoid. And, and then here are some good examples to emulate and celebrate and to pursue. And, and that's what we're going to find today in our passage in Mark 12. We're going to see a contrast. A contrast of examples that Jesus will use. Bad behavior, good behavior to grow and teach his disciples into the fullness of their faith. And so um, Mark has recorded four straight confrontations that we have seen in recent weeks. And it was confrontations between Jesus and what is like the upper echelon of religious leadership in Jerusalem. Uh, all these occurred outside of the temple. And uh, in the passage we read last week, it ended. You remember how it ended? Verse 34 of chapter 12. And it said, And no one dared to ask him any more questions. They tried over and over again different groups, different questions, um, theological questions, um, political questions. And at the end of the day, they said, okay, we're not asking any more questions. Throwing in the white towel because this uneducated man from Nazareth is going toe-to-toe -to -toe with the men and women with doctorates and master's degrees in Jerusalem. And so they say, okay, we need to dial it back and regroup. And so Jesus now enters the temple with his disciples in a great crowd that has gathered during all these confrontations, and now Jesus is the one who's going to ask a question. And that's where we're going to pick it up. Mark chapter 12, verse 35. We're going to begin just reading 35 to 37. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, 
The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. At first glance, your response might be, all right, how does this teaching fit with any of the other things? What is he saying here? This doesn't seem to relate. But, but it actually, I think as we'll see, this little question Jesus asks serves as this bridge between last week's passage and then what's going to happen next, which we'll see in a little while. If last week, if you were here, um, we saw Jesus say the greatest commandment of 613 commandments in the Old Testament law, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And then he says, oh, by the way, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And do you remember at the end, the scribe who posed the question goes, actually, you're, you're right. I, I agree with you. And then Jesus says back to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You see, fulfilling these two laws perfectly is the requirement to enter the kingdom of God. So the good news is you know that. But the bad news is no, nobody can measure up to that standard. Nobody can gain entry into the kingdom of God on their own. And so Jesus would teach these things, and even his disciples would respond to that and be like, what? Like, even if this guy, this scribe, this Ivy Leaguer, man, he's smarter than all of us, he knows it all. If he cannot enter the kingdom of God, then who can? And Jesus is like, exactly. Like, now we're getting somewhere. It is impossible without a savior. So last week, Jesus addressed the greatest commandment. This week, he's going to address the greatest question. Who is the Christ? Who is he? It's the most important question that you will answer in your life or not answer. Who is the Christ? And if you remember, if you've been with us in this series, back in Mark 8, he already revealed this to his disciples privately. But this is a big moment now because now he's in the temple in Jerusalem. A great crowd surrounds him, including the Pharisees who hate him, and now he's going public. It's time. How many times have we read in Mark? Don't tell anybody about that. Keep it quiet. Keep it quiet for now. We're like, why is he doing that? Why is he doing that? Because he's biding his time, and now, Holy Week, it's time. And the way he's going to go about unveiling himself is... to be the Christ is asking a question, um, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? So we need to unpack this because Jesus is referring to a, uh, a common teaching, a popular teaching amongst the scribes at that time that Israel was waiting for the Christ. Christ is the Greek word equivalent for the Hebrew word Messiah. Okay, Christ, Messiah, same thing. And the leadership within Israel, for the most part, were awaiting the arrival of a Messiah who would be the, quote, son of David, meaning a man born into the royal line of David, King David, who reigned about a thousand years prior to this time. So Jesus will agree with this, partially. He says, no, they're right, but they're partially right. The Christ will be a man, but not just a man. So to start where they are in agreement, the the scriptures all throughout the Old Testament speak about the Messiah that's going to come out the family line of King David. God made this clear with his covenant to David in 2 Samuel 7, 16, verse will be on the screen. He says this to David, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so probably a dozen times throughout the Old Testament, would build on this verse and kind of just say this long-awaited Messiah that we are waiting for will come from the line of David. He will be the son of David. 
So Jesus agrees, yes, that is where the Christ will come from. It's where the one who will deliver God's people will come from. But Jesus says, hang on, you're kind of missing something. David himself knew that this Christ was not just going to be a man like he was. And Jesus takes him to the scriptures, takes him to Psalm 10. Fun fact about Psalm 110, the most quoted psalm in the New Testament is Psalm 110. And where he says, David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote these words. So, side note, really powerful and clear picture of how Jesus viewed the Bible. How did Jesus view the scriptures? This really gives us evidence. He viewed them as a divinely human book. Okay, Jesus affirmed that the scriptures were written by men. David wrote, but they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's kind of a dual authorship. That's our stance on the Bible. This is where our confidence lies, that this word is infallible, it is without error, it is fully inspired by the Holy Spirit, but it was written by mankind, written by men. So in Psalm 110, Jesus points out that David himself, the David that you said is going to come in line to be the Messiah, David himself says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Here's the point Jesus is making. He says, the Lord does not say, the Lord says to my son but to my Lord, meaning this future Christ would be a man, but not just a man. He'll be his offspring, but he'll be divine. The God-man, born of a woman, yet born of God, king over all. Jesus is the incarnate word of God. He's fully human and fully God. Really important to understand in Christianity. Two natures in one person. And David, on some level, 1,000 years before he was born, inspired by the Holy Spirit, had some kind of working knowledge of this. He didn't know how it was going to come about. He didn't know his name. But he knew on some level that this was not just going to be a man. Which is why Jesus teaches this. And, and what's Mark tell us? The great crowd... The great throng of people marveled at this. And now, maybe he did, but Jesus at this moment, as recorded by Mark, did not go, oh, and by the way, it's me. But maybe he's teaching that. We know his disciples know that. But he is cultivating the ground. And he's correcting the false expectations of who the Christ will be so that when he reels himself to be the Christ, people will be ready to see it. Oftentimes in life, we have to unlearn things in order to learn new things. And in doing so, Jesus is not changing God's plan. He's not plan B. He's fulfilling God's original plan. Do you remember how Mark began his gospel? Chapter 1, verse 1, last January. I'm sure you remember. He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This Messiah, he wasn't just going to be a political king. He's going to be an eternal king. He came not just to save Israel, but to save men and women from all nations. He came not to just deliver them from Rome, but to free them from sin. Not to just install a temporary kingdom, but one that is everlasting, the kingdom of God. And the Bible is clear that entry into this kingdom is by faith in Jesus Christ. Believing in him. Which means it's not about how good you are. On that day, he's not going to take your good things and your bad things. Go, okay, where are the scales tipping? It's not about how good your church attendance has been. It's not going to be good on what other people would say about you. He's a pretty good guy. He should get in. It's not going to be based on that. It's not going to be based on whether you grew up in a religious family who knew the truths of the gospel. We can't just point to that and say that's the reason. That's a gift. That's a blessing to grow up in a Christian home. But that's not going to be what we're going to point to to gain entry to the kingdom of God. 
It's not going to be doing all the religious activities as a kid. If you were dedicated or baptized or did communion or did um, whatever your church growing up had you do growing up, going through the ranks, good things, blessings that you have done that to put truth in front of you and give you a ladder and a place to walk through, but none of that's going to be what gains you entry to the kingdom of God. Being genuinely saved means being convicted of sin, repenting of it, and relying fully on the person and work of Jesus Christ as our Savior. And I mentioned that this passage would be a bridge between the great commandment and what we're about to read. And the reason is because Jesus is going to say, you know what entering to the kingdom of God is? It's, it's through the Christ. But once you gain entry through the Christ, there's going to be some examples of what it looks like and what it does not look like to actually love God. God frees you, God equips you, God gives you a new heart to love God with all your heart and to love others. And here's some examples of what it doesn't look like and then what it does. And hear me, the ratio is going to be telling. We're about to see five bad examples and one good one. You see, it's easier to get it wrong than to get it right. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it by it are many. But for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. The ratio is telling. So let's read this next section, Mark 12, 38 to 40. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. Short verses, and yet in them, Jesus packs in five examples of what it does not look like to truly love God and love others. Number one, craving attention. They um, walked around in long robes, craving attention from others. Um, when the Pharisees and Sadducees entered and exited the temple, it was always dramatic. It was always pronounced ahead of time so everyone would be ready and lined up to watch them walk in and watch them walk out. They loved being seen in the right places, wearing what they would consider in the first century as the bling-bling. These long robes that had these tassels, and, and you know, even though you would never be caught dead in them, at the time, these were upper echelon, what only they wore, and the message they screamed out, that the clothing screamed out, is we're different than you. Look at us. Be impressed with us. We're important. You see these. No regard for God. No eyes to see others or notice others, especially we know uh, that the poor and the needy also often gathered at the temple gates to look for help, but they're not coming to see others. They're coming to be seen. And be marveled at. And when it came to a love for God, it was all about outward appearance more than it was inward reality. You know, there, perhaps you've seen some of these. Um, there are videos that have gone viral over the years of, of, of being in a public place, like a mall or a ball game, uh, where somebody is wearing a full military uniform. 
and loving the attention that comes with it and going up to people and taking pictures and talking to little kids. And then somebody, um, usually somebody who's in the military or has been in the military, sees something's a little off. And they'll approach them on camera and just ask them, hey, um, what unit did you serve in? Where were you based? How many tours have you done? What rank are you? And they look at their badges and something would be off with the badges or they'd start saying the answers and basically over a couple minutes they'd be exposed. They've never served in the military. It's actually illegal to do it, to dress up and then go out in public in a full military uniform. But they got their hands on it. They got some badge they paced together. And in some ways they love the attention of being somebody who is an active service member. And it's the same thing. Outward appearance mattered more than inward reality. It was the attention and the credit without any of the sacrifice. This is what Jesus is saying, warning them of. Beware of those who crave attention. They're all for show. An example of one with no love for God, but hear me, they love the appearance of being godly. It's a big difference and a dangerous one. That's number one. Number two, requiring status. Uh, they needed to be greeted a certain way in public so all would know and acknowledge their high status amongst the people. So everyone had to stand when they walked by or they entered the temple. They had to refer them the right way. Sometimes it was rabbi, sometimes it was master, even times it was father. And they would not allow themselves in any way to be mistaken for the common folk. You see, these people had titles. And you better know them. And so each time, it was this kind of persistent reminder coming in, coming out in the marketplaces that, again, they're higher than you. They're different than you. And the primary motivation is to just this persistent reminder to get them to a place where now they can oppress. Thinking about this today, um, we, we got to be careful, right? We know it's not wrong to refer to people appropriately or in a way that shows respect. Uh, we, don't we teach our children this from an early age? If you grew up in the South, you said sir or ma'am, and you better not forget it. Because it was trouble if you did. We, we teach our kids, Mr. So-and-so, Ms. So-and-so. We call a judge at your honor. And the courtroom stands when they enter. If you have served in the military, it was important to know rank and appropriate greetings for various officers. And, and the reason is because there is such a thing as common courtesy, uh, just respect and honor to teach in people to see in others, especially those who are older than them. You know, so our four-year-old, they took him a while to call his aunts and uncles like uncle so-and-so. So I have a brother, Dave, and he'd just be like, hey, Dave, like, come here. Okay, you're old enough, Uncle Dave. Uncle Dave's like, yeah, Uncle Dave, right? But, but there's something to be said that when you have to add the title, it teaches him respect, teaches him courtesy. But there is a big difference, and maybe it can be hard to tell sometimes, between um, teaching respect and demanding status, of finding your pride and your identity in a title so that others can be reminded, you're up here, they're down here, and don't you forget it. And it's not out of a love or concern to teach them, respect, teach them respect, it's to put them in their place. Again, so you could oppress them without much of a problem. Because you're here. They're here. So that's number two. Let's keep going. Number three, they wanted to be prominently located. 
they had the best seats in the synagogues and in the feasts. Okay, there was no sitting in the back rows for these guys. Uh, They were up front and they were center and they were there for everyone to see because what's the point of being in the synagogue if you can't be seen? What's the point of being in a meal in public? And a lot of times these feasts would be in public and the crowd would go watch them because they had nothing else to do then. They had no games to go to. So they watched the Pharisees eat. Like it was an actual thing. And so they wanted to be the place next to the host, the most prominent location. What's the point of going to a meal if you can't be next to the host? And all of these examples have the common thread of a completely self-absorbed view of the world. The desire to be seen consumed with how we are viewed, always needing to be in the right place at the right time in front of the right camera, always in a positive light. And the appearance of devoutness mattered more than any true inward love for God and neighbor. You know, it was a problem back then, but the reality is we know this is an age-old problem. Even the desire to be seen in prominent locations So right now you guys are sitting in pews. Do you guys know the history of pews and churches? It's it's not great. It's not great. (laughs) What happened was after the Reformation, um, when there was a, a kind of a centralizing on the word and the sermon in the corporate gathering, which is a good thing that we would support, um, the place in which you went to the corporate gathering and heard the sermon preached became really important. And so pews, if you go look up online, they were more like pew boxes, kind of like higher. They had actually entryways, and they were sold to families in the church. So you had a deed to a certain pew. Now, some of you guys think you own these pews, all right, but... <laughs> but you don't. That's not a thing here. And, and, and there was times in the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries in the U.S. Um, across denominations where there was at times in churches no general seating. You only came if you had a pew or knew somebody who owned a pew. And occasionally, over time, there would become general seating, oftentimes in the back or in the balconies, and that would be occupied by people of color or the poorest of poor in the region. It's not great. But the richest families in the church sat up front. You owned the pew. You were prominently located. Best seat in the house. And you would think about why would they do that? And you could probably spin as well. They're supporting the church. It's going towards ministry. We're sharing our generosity. But at the end of the day, they appeared to be devout in their love for God because they were up front. But more times than not, it can be all for show. Because we have a consuming desire to be seen in certain places. And, and so you could, I think, extend this to even what church attendance is today. We, I talk about often the corporate gathering is the most important hour of the week. It's not the only aspect of church by a long shot, but it's the most important hour of the week that we have as a faith community, corporately gathered, centered on the word, sing, pray, hear the word of God proclaimed. But it's possible to come regularly without any love for God or the community we worship with, but rather for a love of being seen as someone who goes to church. Because maybe there's advantage. Maybe it gets you into a relationship. Maybe it helps out at work. And there's a difference, right? Everyone's here. Maybe not all the motivations are here. And this isn't like a, taking a shot at anyone. I have nobody in my mind when I say this. But just in general, we know there's a desire to come to church regularly to worship out of a love for God 
versus a desire to come to be seen as somebody who goes to church. And there's a difference. And Jesus says, beware. Beware. Number four, this is probably the worst of all, taking advantage. And more specifically, taking advantage of the vulnerable. Mark says they would devour widows' houses. They would take advantage of the most vulnerable people groups in their culture, which were widows at the time, in order to enrich themselves all the more. So you had widows, women who lost their husbands, and they would be preyed upon, not prey, like predator prey, okay? Like not good prey, bad prey. They'd be preyed upon by these scribes who, in the name of God, the trusted ones in the culture, the men closest to God with the false pretense of coming to help, would become estate planners for their homes. And over time convinced them that shifting the resources of their home to them or to the temple would be doing God's work. And in the meantime, devouring them and their husband's legacy, getting completely robbed. You know what you don't do if you love God and love your neighbor? Take advantage of them. Especially of those who are most vulnerable. The Bible is filled with the call of God's people to look out for, seek justice for, protect the very marginalized people groups we have in our society. And in this case, the very religious leaders who are supposed to put in power to protect them are the ones abusing them. And if you go throughout the Old Testament, especially the prophetic books, you know what some of the most strongest condemnations are in those books? Towards the leadership of Israel and their behavior towards widows and orphans. The ones they were supposed to protect the most were the ones they were abusing and taking advantage of. You know, we think about today, this is a very conflated movement all around, but the Me Too movement, hashtag Me Too, it started in Hollywood, but it hit just about every institution, including the church. And some of the most infuriating stories are of powerful ministry leaders who were trusted by women and then be the very ones that were taken advantage of by these ministry leaders and be exploited sexually, financially, emotionally. The vulnerable ones in society are the ones that need to be protected, not exploited. This includes widows, but we would kind of consider that in our first century context. It would include the unborn. It would include those caught in systemic poverty to single mothers struggling to get on their feet. That the church is called to step into these spaces and seek justice for the most vulnerable. And so when we talk about being pro-life, that includes the unborn, but that does not stop at birth and should extend to all of life. And hear me, as a pastor of a church, that's overwhelming. Like, just look around. Look how much injustice is all around. Like, how can we ever even make an impact or make a dent? How can we address injustice? We're just a little church. And it just hit me this week. You know what? No one church can do everything. But every church can do something. And that's so all together, the global church, people of God make an impact and God gets the glory. And that's our call. Number five appearing spiritual. 
So in line with the others, the scribe um, would go into these kind of long, impressive prayers in public. And people would hear them in the temple and they'd go, oh, wow. You hear that? That that guy must really love God. You hear the words he's saying? That man knows his scriptures. How impressive is that? Beware of the ones who are active in public and devoid of any prayer in private. You know, it's not wrong to pray publicly in a way that moves people. Jeff talked about it today. It's, It's just enjoyable to hear people of God pray. And some people pray and you just get amped up in hearing them. That is, praise God for that. But just because you can, or just because a man could preach really well that moves people, is not an indication in and of itself that they love God. I heard a man once say once, show me what any great preacher looks like in his prayer closet. I want to know if the passion's the same. And that is convicting for me. Am I turning it on from 10.30 to a little after 11? Or is this me? Is this Sunday me or is this me? Is this private me or is this public me? Danny Aiken sums it up best when he says, quote, better a few fumbling words from a humble heart than a marvelous oration from a proud heart. So here we have it. Just three verses in your Bible, but a lot packed in. Five bad examples from the scribes, and then Jesus gives a really chilling warning. They will receive the greater condemnation. You know, the Bible, in many places, including right here where Jesus' own words, the Bible projects hell as a place where all who do not believe in Jesus Christ will be punished, but it will not be equal punishment for all. There seems to be a higher level of punishment for those who are in leadership that are hip, or who are hypocritical and lead others astray. It's why James will say in the early days of the church, years after that, that, quote, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And so when we approach men to be elders in this church, we don't just say, hey, do you want to be an elder? It's like a couple meetings a month. You know, it's going to take a little bit of time. You got to make some decisions, some votes, but it's not any big deal. That's not how we approach men. We say, you are bringing upon yourself a greater judgment. Do not enter into this lightly. God calls and he equips and he gives you the strength, but do not enter into this lightly. If you know Matthew's account of this same teaching... This list of bewares leads to the famous um, seven woes to the scribes in Matthew 23. Are you familiar with that passage? Mark, for whatever reason, does not include it. But we know from Matthew that in this very moment, Jesus goes into his most angry teaching in the Gospels. And it's geared towards the religious leaders because the reason that their hypocrisy does not just hurt them, it leads others astray from God as well. And so the warning in our scripture is laid right before us as a church that nothing is more serious than the temptation to believe that if we appear holy, it actually means we're holy. There is no greater deception that the enemy carries out than the one who is confident in their salvation merely based upon outward appearances. 
And you know what the scariest part is in just thinking and dwelling upon this this past week? I think these religious leaders in Jesus' day really did believe they were doing the work of God. I think they had convinced themselves that they are in right standing with God. They are in God's good graces, but they were so deceived, horribly deceived. And so it's a warning sign to the church, and it's placed in our path. And like any good warning sign, whether on the roadway or in your life, it can save your life. It can be a means of grace. And so maybe the encouragement to you this morning is do not let this warning pass you by. Jesus is not addressing the sinners out there who need to get their act together. He's addressing the religious who appear to know him best. And the answer is the same. Run to Jesus. Repent. He will be faithful to forgive. And at the heart level, the question that we're all going to have to answer is, is our love for God or is our love for the appearance of loving God? And thankfully, Jesus does not just end it there because there's a better way. There's some bad examples to avoid. We got those. But there's a good example to emulate. And when he's standing in the temple, he spots it. Let's read. Finish the chapter, verses 41 to 44. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who were contributing to the offering box. For they contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Just take a step back and think about this, especially in the context of first century Palestine. After Jesus condemns the lifestyle and behavior of the most feared, powerful men in the region, Jesus proceeds to affirm the actions and example of who? A woman. Not just a woman, a poor widow. As the one example that he wants to be celebrated in front of his disciples. A day later... We'll see it in Mark 14 when we eventually get there. He's going to do it again. He's going to celebrate the humble yet faithful action of a woman that contrasts with the selfish, prideful actions of the leading men of the day. So here's the scene. Jesus just posts up in the temple, and he has a good view of everything. And in the temple, there were 13 different chests throughout the temple courts that had various offerings that people could give to. And all these offerings were a trumpet-like shape where money would drop in, and flow down into the chest. And here's the important part. It made noise as the coins hit it. So the more money you gave, the more noise it made. So you know what this reminded me of? I, I, I just don't feel like you see them anymore. But you remember at all the banks and grocery stores, there'd be that machine called the Coin Star. Some of you, I, I, this is the first time I'm ever saying this, but some of you younger folk, all right, you're never going to be able to experience this because we don't have change anymore. Um, But it was a machine where you'd bring all your change and trade it in for cash. And I remember in high school and college, I would save up change for a long time. And so it would be like once a year, maybe, maybe even longer, where I would go with my Ziploc bags to the coin star at the grocery store, the TD bank, and I would dump it all in. And that sound was awesome. It made a commotion in the bank. Tons of coins, mostly pennies. 
but it'd be a loud sound, and, and then people would always be like, whoa, what's going on? And I'd be posted up like, yep. <laughs> All mine. And I would walk out with my $93 like I just won the lottery. The more money you had, the more sound it made. And so, rich men would walk into the temple during the busiest time of day, unload their money into the chest because it caused a big commotion. And people would see it and go, whoa, do you hear that? How generous is he? How faithful is his love for God? And then the poor widow walks up after. Two measly coins, together making a penny. Ka-ching, ka-ching. Barely hear it. Nobody would give her a second look. How pathetic. And she walks away, and it's here where Jesus calls his disciples. Guys, guys, come here, come here. You see that woman? She's about to head out. You see her? She's put in more than all the rest. The others, they gave a little bit. But she was faithful in giving all that she had. That is somebody who loves God. What's the point Jesus is making? The same point as the bewares. Do not trust outward appearances. Do not judge public displays. God judges the heart, always. And in the immediate context, as he often did, Jesus is making a statement about money. It's telling, if you think about it. After saying the greatest commandment, to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus gives one example, one practical example. And what is it? It's the example of financial generosity. And it's something that he did often, teaching on money. And it was a convicting week for me. You know why? I've been the primary preaching pastor now for two years, entering my third year. You know what I hate talking about? Money. I have found I am very uncomfortable with it. And if I really try to dig down and tell you why, it's because I know the reputations of some preachers have, and I know that people see televangelists, and I know people have this concept of what do preachers and money, and that gets weird and awkward, and they're always trying to abuse and manipulate. And so I just said, you know what? If I never talk about it, no one could accuse me of that. And by doing so, by being essentially silent, I'm doing not only a disservice to you, but to this church, because you know what? Money is a big part of our life. And Jesus taught on it often. Do you know that in the Gospels, he teaches more about money than heaven and hell combined? Because he knew how important it was and is. He knew how dangerous it could be. He would go as far as to say, you can't serve both God and money. You can't have two masters. And you know what? He doesn't say that about anything else. But he says it about money, which says something in and of itself. And our staff was talking about this, that if, if, if particularly new believers, and praise God, we have many new believers, people checking out Christianity in our church week after week, if they're not going to get biblical teaching on money and giving from our church, where do we expect them to get it? And it's convicting for me, and I confess before you that I've held back on an area that is vital for discipleship and vital for growth and Christian maturity. So as we finish, what's Jesus saying here? What's he really saying An aspect of loving God and loving your neighbor is wrapped up in generosity. And this is important. When it comes to giving and generosity, it's not about how much you give. It's about how much you have left. 
The percentage of what you keep is more important than how much you give. So if you grew up in a church, you've probably heard the word tithe. And you know tithe means 10%. And you say, well, that's a biblical word somewhere in there. And yes, it is. It comes from the Old Covenant, Leviticus 27, when the nation of Israel was commanded to tithe, to give 10% of all their produce from the land to the Lord. The word tithe never appears in the New Testament after the Gospels in the era of the church. And personally, I know this is not everybody's conviction, my personal theological conviction is that I don't think the tithe is binding on the church today. But in my study of this, in a little book, it's in our library, called The Treasure Principle by Randy Alcorn, was so helpful for me that me and one other elder went through in the last few months. In the new covenant, Jesus never lowers the bar, he always raises it. And I think the tithe is not mentioned because, not because you don't have to give 10%, but rather you're not limited to 10%. But for new believers, and it is a question one-on-one I feel often, what do you do for give? How do you finance things? Where should I start? I think the tithe is a biblical number to start for believers in the local church. And just to say, try it. Try and give 10% and watch what God does to multiply that generosity, not back to you necessarily, but in the kingdom of God. He will provide for you. We know that. We have confidence in that. But this isn't like, if you give 10%, you'll get 20% in the first year. Man, if he does that, praise God. Then you've got to give more. (laughs) And I'll just say, and you say, well, you're young. You shouldn't say this, but I'll just say this. Um, I've never met somebody who has said, you know what, Pastor? I've just been given too much and I'm miserable. I'm just too generous and it's making me miserable. Maybe I'll hear it someday. I haven't. But I have heard regret the other way. I have lived in the regret the other way. And so God has provided for the, for the ministry of Grace Church, like through the generosity of our people in abundance, despite the fact that I have not been able to teach and preach on it as much as I should, as much as I should have been doing. And our giving has been a huge source of encouragement to our staff and our elders because we have gotten to a surplus each of the past two years. It hadn't happened for, I think, said seven years prior. And I personally, some of you know this, not everyone does, I don't know what people give. I do not know how much individuals give in our church. I made a decision based on the advice from my father to not allow myself to see that information. And so I have insight to the financial workings of the church. I oversee it. I know uh, where things are going and and budget-wise and ministries, but I do not see individual giving numbers. But I know from our finance team that the giving has been spread out, has grown with the amount of people in our church. It's been a healthy source of growth. And so praise God for that. We should celebrate that. And also just be a little bit careful because just looking at amounts is not the most important part. The blessing is not for those who give a lot. The blessing is for those who give sacrificially. And from personal experience, you know what we're really good at? You know what I was really good at? Finding all the reasons why the Bible's teaching on money and giving did not apply to me. Because you know what? I give a lot of time. I give a lot of talents. I give a lot of energy to uh, things of the church, so I don't need to give money. Uh, Rich people give money. I give time. And I just had to come to a reckoning. Be careful. I don't see exceptions in the Bible because it's not blessed to those who give a lot. It's blessed are those who give sacrificially. It's not about total amounts. It's about the amount of sacrifice. And generosity is never about the money. 
It's always about what the money exposes within us. We can't serve two masters. And generosity is a primary indicator as to what's more prominent in our life, God or money. Jesus says, fellas, this poor widow, she gave a penny. Faithfully, humbly, she will be blessed beyond measure. In her generosity, her heart is exposed as faithful. She loves God with all she has. Follow her. Celebrate her. Emulate her. This is how he teaches. Bad examples, good examples. Promises, warnings. And those who believe in Jesus Christ are equipped with the ability to love God and love their neighbor sacrificially for your joy and for the glory of God. So go and do likewise. Let's pray.